Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. We're recording this during for future historians, in case you're listening to this in the 23rd century. We're recording this during terrible pandemic of a disease called coronavirus or COVID-19 that is uh, spreading throughout the world so quickly, so with a, such unbelievable speed and deadliness that it's led to a, a universal quarantine. Pretty much every nation on earth has some kind of rule or law suggesting or mandating that everyone stays home except people that have absolutely crucial necessary jobs that is medical people and the people that sell the food in the food stores and uh, truck drivers that bring the food and uh, everyone else is kind of on lockdown our podcast, the three of us are going to discuss quarantine. That's the word we have chosen to symbolize this existential position that pretty much everyone in the known world is in. So this is our discussion of quarantine. I don't know if, Sam, you want to discuss the word quarantine at this point. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I the word quarantine, I guess, is from carryover from the French, Italian. It's a Romance uh, language derivative from Latin, uh, which means forty. And my understanding is that it had its first application had to do with a ship that on which the, that carried the plague. And according to the contemporary science which I guess would be a form of Christian science. It was decided that 40 days was the appropriate length of time to separate this population from the rest in order to allow the plague uh, to rage through this ship and do whatever it's going to do. But I believe the 40 may be derived from, you know, 40 days, Lord, and 40 nights the period of time that our Lord Jesus Christ spent in some form of seclusion or separation. He was fasting for 40 days, am I correct? Um, Prior to, you know, a lot of things going off, and particularly around this day, which I guess is in Passover, but is also in the Christian mythology related to (laughs) What, what they call, I've always found curiously, uh, Good Friday. It right. is Friday. Um, I've always thought it was a kind of kind of dark Friday or even black, you know, like not such a nice Friday because this is when we crucified Jesus. You know, it's a kind of twisty thing to take a uh, crucifixion and call it a good deal. But I understand that he died for our sins or some um, story like that. And also 40 days uh, is the uh, Noah's Ark. That's how long they were. And that talk about sequestered on a boat. 
Oh, they yeah. were in quarantine um, during the flood. Excellent association. I would also like to, to point out quarantine is part of the action. Quarantine is what we go into after you have, after you're confirmed to have the COVID-19 virus inside of you, inside of your body, and then you go into quarantine what I guess governments and what the medical establishment is established, uh, has dictated is a, a self-isolation. Yeah, there's different terms. Social isolation, I've heard. So, yeah, it's a, and I think there are still other terms. It's so new that I think they're still working out the vocabulary of it. Yeah, but I think you're right. We're not officially quarantined. Although I like the word quarantine. Because there aren't that many words that begin with Q, and it's just kind of a quaint, classic word. Well, it has it has inside of it the word Warren, Quarren, Warren. You know, the Warren as a um, bounded, bounded, as a demarcated space. A Warren is like a like an animal's den. Yeah, well, I think that we picked it up with Elizabeth Warren. Um, <laughs> well, all my all all the um, experiences I can remember hearing the word quarantine in um, recent memory had to do with cruise ships, cruise uh-huh. like carnival cruise ships. Um, you'd read or you'd hear that it had been quarantined because there was an outbreak of a flu or some terrible um, gastrointestinal disorder some sort of disease and that the ship had been quarantined for a period of time in some port or another. Well, the, you know, I think that there are various ways of talking about it, I guess, you know, self-isolation, which I actually, I like the word isolate. It comes hmm. from insula, insulation, in isola, isolation, insula, uh, the Latin island, uh, and that we are all in an archipelago of islands. Huh. Uh, state of being an island. We're all islands <coughs> to ourselves. I guess John Dunn had something to say about that. Right. He had the opposite point. No man is an island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. Right. It tolls for thee. Yeah. That's the end of that sonnet. It's yeah. all one sonnet. Death yeah. be not proud. I think might be the Though same. Though many have called the merciful and mighty, or am I confusing? <laughs> it's quite. Possible. I think all of Dun- I Ask read all of Dunn's. The bell tolls. It tolls for thee. I yeah. Yeah, that part I know is right. I read yes. all of Dunn not that long ago. There isn't that much of Dunn. You know, it's maybe three hundred pages. All his poetry. Yeah, he was definitely a practitioner of concision, and he also had a terrific longer poem called "The Flea." Yes, famous poem. Sometimes his poetry will be published with his sermons, right? The, the yeah. holy, son, holy sonnets, holy sermons. His sermons were not so brief. No. Like most sermons are not brief. They're loquacious. Is, I, yeah. I've read many. You've read them? I, I don't believe I have. Maybe um, Me neither. paragraph here or paragraph there. Another great, he's very good with the first line. Batter my heart, three-person God, yeah. for, for thou now, but da-da, 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 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, his holy sonnets. 
That's First, right. he was a complete libertine. Those are his holy. That's one of his holy yeah. sonnets, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he started yeah. out his life like, "Hey, baby, let's you and I totally, uh, you know, meet in my loft." That was like the theme of his first twenty poems. Yeah. Well, what's also interesting with the in relation to the sonnet "The Flea" is that the plague was conveyed <coughs> through the flea that was carried through the rats. And oh yeah, other, yeah, yeah. Yeah, other vermin. But I don't know if he knew that. He's pretty early. He's like Shakespearean time. He's a little bit after Shakespeare done, I think. I don't know if right. they knew. Generation after Shakespeare, plus or minus, right? Sure. Yeah. So I don't or know after if they Shakespeare's knew. death or around. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's right after Shakespeare, I think. So, uh, because he's kind of an elaboration. It's kind of like the way the Baroque comes out of. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, like Dunn is kind of the Baroque emanation of that kind of classicism of uh, Shakespeare, if you ask me. <laughs> That's why it's metaphysical. Shakespeare is highly unmetaphysical. That's for sure. He doesn't really go for all that razzle-dazzle complex uh, abstraction. Well, he goes for the abstraction as it emerges from the concrete. If that makes sense, he doesn't go from the abstract to the physical. It's the other way around, perhaps. But Shakespeare is so so thick and so omnidirectional. You know, I think I'm gonna immediately now go to my reading from. You know, we all chose theoretically readings to recite about this sure. crisis, and uh, it's just leading me inexorably to this book dead right sea on souls. Right. The one, isn't that the book you're trying to get rid of yeah i'm trying to get rid of the dead dead sea scrolls i was trying to give it away to my friend tom luciano except uh, so he could sell it on the internet but then i looked it up and it's worth about three dollars particularly this one this copy which is like covered with uh the cover is has lots of uh, co uh, cockroach droppings on it yeah so it is a hardcover. Sparrow, maybe you could tune it up a little bit, like do a drawing and inscribe it. And uh... I know, if only I were more famous. There's like a joke about Allen Ginsberg that the, the books he signed are worth less than the books he didn't sign because he signed so many of them. And, and I'm, I'm even more like that. I think my books are definitely worth more if I don't sign them. Not that they're worth anything in any, in any case. But anyway, so I, I just opened this book. I said, I'm going to get rid of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm never going to read the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't even care about the Dead Sea Scrolls, even though bizarrely the reason I became a vegetarian is because I met this Essene sitting under a tree at Cornell University during my orientation week wearing a white robe. And then I went up to him. What was his name? Peter, I think. And he, like, uh, taught me everything about the Essene doctrines that had recently been translated and why I shouldn't eat cooked foods. So I actually began my spiritual life as a follower of this dopey document, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But now I could care less about it. But nonetheless, I did, I said, before I give it away, before I give it to some, you know, cheesy thrift shop, I'm just going to open it at random and choose... Uh, a passage, just put my finger down wherever it goes. Yeah. Sparrow, uh, just for it really quickly, I didn't know there still were Essenes. I didn't oh, realize. Yeah, plenty of Essenes. Yeah. 
I think you got to go to Hawaii. I think that Peter, the last time I saw Peter, sounds like a Joni Mitchell song. Yeah, was, yeah, I was thinking that's a good title for a novel, The Last Time I Saw Peter. The last time I saw Peter was at an Aretha Franklin concert. Aretha Franklin played Cornell, probably would be like early 1972. Very brief concert, like 45 minutes. As I recall, she was transcendental. And then Peter went off to Hawaii, where he maybe he still is, sitting under a tree eating avocados. My my favorite Essene of all the Essenes I've met. Anyway, so this is from a section called Commentaries on Isaiah. And this is Fragment 23, Column 2. So remember, I just randomly chose this passage. For so says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, by repentance and repose you will be saved. In quiet trust is your power. But you did not agree, and you said, no, let us flee on horseback. So you shall flee indeed. You said, let us ride something swift, but your pursuers will also be swift. If a thousand flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five, you all will flee until you are left like a pole on a mountaintop, a flag on a hill. But the Lord is waiting to show you mercy. Truly, he will rise up to have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How happy are all who wait for him. So I just the part, really the beginning part, is so much the situation we're now in. By repentance and repose, you will be saved. I must uh, confess that the you will be saved part is in brackets. So I guess it's inferred by the three editors. But anyway... That's that's what God is saying to us right now. By repentance and repose, you will be saved. You have to, you can't flee on horseback. There's nowhere to go. You can't escape this virus. The more you run, the faster it'll catch you. That's what uh, this uh, oracle is telling me. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that image of the flag on the pole. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty weird, right? Like that's a. A great sense of kind of a loneliness, uh, as well as a little bit of a Dunian sense of like the isolation, that flag on the pole. And oftentimes when a ship was quarantined, it would have some flag up on a pole saying, you know, articulating in semaphore, this ship is under quarantine. Yeah, it reminds me also of the... And I'm going to get this wrong. Appointment in Samara. Oh, yeah. I love that uh, that uh, parable. And what is it? The guy goes to the he goes to the market, Baghdad. No, he's told that death is going to come for him that day. Yeah. Somehow it's transmitted to him that death is on his trail and that he's going to die how do, yeah, that he's going to die. So he flees. Yeah. And he goes to Samara. And no, I death. think what happens is they tell him, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. you do, don't go to Samara because death is waiting for you there. And so then he flees to Baghdad. He goes to the market and there's death. 
Death finds him in the market and Death is really surprised. And the guys and Death says to him, that's strange. I expected to see you in Samara, something like that. We had an appointment in Samara. I think that's why it's called Appointment in Samara, that novel, I think. So in other words, he escapes to something like this. He escapes to Baghdad to get away from Samara, but death catches him anyway. That's the point. You can't you can't run away from death. Right. Yeah, I think it was the novel Appointment in Samara. Isn't that a John O'Hara novel? I, I, I was going to say John O'Hara, yeah. yeah. When I was a kid, like every working class Irish Catholic family had a John O'Hara novel, or a few of them, on top of the refrigerator. Anyway, that's my memory. Not bad novels. Sort of had, they always had a bit of a hard scrabble edge to them. You read them? I've read, you know, in the fullness of time, I guess, one or two John O'Hara novels. Yeah. So I think I've read Appointment in Samara, I believe. Yeah. It, uh, I think it, as I recall, it, it's the story of a man who has a car dealership in Pennsylvania, uh, in Scranton. Wow. <laughs> That's where that's where your mom is from, isn't it? No, it's where my dad is from. Dad, sorry, pardon me. Yeah, and I spent a lot of time as a kid in Scranton, so it's a very vivid place to me, and a kind of a real used car dealership kind of place too. Isn't that where Joe Biden is from? Yeah, he's from Scranton, but you know he's associated more. I think he was the senator from Delaware. Yeah. He moved from Scranton to Delaware, which is a very logical path, because <laughs> Scranton was dying, I think, in his generation, certainly in my dad's generation. Like, my dad and his his brother are always kind of lamenting that they had to leave Scranton. They claim they would have been perfectly happy if they spent their entire lives in Scranton, but, you know, there was no job, so they had to come to New York City and become... Uh, in one case, a psychologist, and in another, a marketing researcher. Uh, and then my uncle lives very close to you, Andrew, lives like a block from you. How old is he? Is he close to your dad's age? He's much younger. He's like only 95, maybe? 95. That's true. <laughs> I, I thought your uncle had a place near me. Yeah, right. That's the I'm connection. Glasgow. Both of you are near houses of my uncle. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of a strange karma. That's why we're all three together on this podcast. Your, your dad is 102. He's in Brooklyn. He's 101. 101. How is he dealing with the um, social distancing, self-isolation? What's what's his take on it all? Well, you know, he's. A li- I just talked to him last night for Passover. I wished him a happy Passover. He's a little bit lonely. Nobody's coming to visit him. Right. And he's not going out the last few days. He hasn't gone out. But he is pathologically contented now. You know, he was always kind of a miserable. He was, I don't know if I ever told you this story. Like when anyone would ask him, how are you doing his whole life? He would always reply, miserable. That was his standard reply. And it was pretty accurate, I think. And now that he got like super old, he is just very grateful, very kind He's he's become he's like a like a pupa that's become a butterfly. Spiritually, he's blossomed. That's a that's so beautiful. That's so wonderful. It's great. It's really uh, you know very fulfilling for me in a way. Sure. You know, I take responsibility for it partly because I am a narcissistic guy. <laughs> so I see myself partly as responsible. Anybody around me gets better, I think. Oh yeah, it must be my influence. <laughs> 
my highest aspiration, I guess, for this period of sequestration is mm. that it will act for some percentage of us as a pumpa, as a cocoon out of which people <coughs> will be liberated, out of which people will emerge as butterflies. Yeah, I mean, I made a whole bunch of notes about this. And the first note I mo made, well, it says right here, the beauties of nature, the poem the tree told me. But I forgot to write down this poem that the tree told me because I, well, I didn't forget. I just thought it was not a very good poem. But it, it was something like, uh, laugh with the wind, weep with the rain, dance with the snow. Good job. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, this tree more or less said that to me in the backyard. And huh. But anyway, whether or not trees are telling me somewhat sentimental poems, you know, normally my life goes back and forth between Brooklyn and uh, Phoenicia, and now I can, can't bounce back. I can only stay here. Yeah. And that was one of the points that I was making uh, in my uh, notes is uh, I realized Everybody is sort of stuck wherever they were three weeks ago or four weeks ago, whenever this all started. There was a guy I met named Jordy. I gave a book party in uh, Brooklyn, uh, in Greenpoint, and I met this guy, Jordy, and I got his email address. He lives in Valencia, Spain. He was just visiting for a short time. So I emailed him, you know, a couple weeks later. I said, well, how are things going? And he writes back. Well, I'm in Long Island. I was oh. visiting my parents, and seems one of his roommates in Spain had the virus. So he decided it might be a better idea to stay with his parents. And everybody just got sort of stuck wherever they happened to be. And I was thinking, it's kind of like the game Musical Chairs. Music I stops, and you just, wherever you are, you're frozen. It's like the music has stopped throughout the whole world. We're all just wherever we were three weeks ago. You may have, uh, I think I transmitted uh, that musical chairs analogy to you, Sparrow. And now you, yeah, and now you've passed that verbal or analogical virus back to me. And wow. I, and I passed and, it to you, Sam. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say is that, you know, we have something to look forward to, Sparrow, because the poem that I chose has a tree has a tree phenomena in it. But you don't want to yet read it. Is that it? Well, I mean, I, I could. I mean, I was I was thinking about the different ways people are looking at what we're going through. Sometimes it's called kind of a lockdown. Sometimes it's a kind of a lock up, which I think, you know, there's a whole area of association to penology to being in prison right and we're all you know and, and also echoing back to our podcast on the nature of the cell and then I, I also sort of think perhaps and i guess in again in in sort of my optimum vision of what we're going through that this is a form of retreat this self-isolation pulling back an ebb a withdrawal you know, which can have a profound feel of arising out of withdrawal. There's a profound arising, that there's a reversal. 
There's um, that uh, so French proverb, you know, reculer pour mieux sauter. It means something like drawing back to leap, to better leap. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Like you saute the food and it hops around the uh, frying pan. I think that's why the word saute means to like uh, leap forward. Ah, fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes it's thought of, or I like to think, and and I do have a predilection to seek out the etymologies of words to see where they came from, their um, origination, much of which goes back to the Egyptians, you know, for example, our letters, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a kind of calling back, you know, finding the origin to use that as a springboard to leap forward, you know, that one draws on its original sense in order to come to a new relationship to any particular word that allows it to have a new a renewal. Yeah, I mean, one of my theories that I was just telling someone today, I think, because everybody's talking about what's the world going to be like afterwards. Is there going to be a worldwide depression, which essentially technically there is right now? Is it is the world going to go exactly back to normal? which apparently is what happened after the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. Anyway, I read that somewhere. And also what our president has predicted, that everything will just bounce right back. And I was realizing that after the 1918 epidemic was the Roaring Twenties. And you could kind of picture everybody getting out of their house, particularly young people who've been, you know, in many cases celibate throughout this whole uh sequestration suddenly really going for it partying till there's no stop i mean i don't know if that's one of the influences of the roaring 20s or not the full bacchanalian full bacchus the dionysian yeah yeah Yeah. one of the phrases that i've been tossing around in my head is that it sounds a little highfalutin but i i like it is that is that we all find ourselves to be prisoners of a world that no longer exists. Hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> it means that the where we left the world when we went into this sequestration. Oh yeah. That it it no longer exists, and we are prisoners of that former hmm. world. But the hmm. world into which we will emerge may have a completely could could have a different fulcrum could have a different center of gravity could have uh, you know i would hope a a more diverse and and, and frankly i i hope that we'll reemerge into a world in which the tune is no longer dictated by the economy, dismal mm. science that we've discussed a little bit, I guess. It is interesting to see images from around the world of places, especially the skylines of cities, streams, creeks that run through human developments that are very quickly becoming quite beautiful and pristine mm. just in several weeks' time due to the absence of, um, of dumping and you know, chemicalized industry that that Mother Earth is um, benefiting from this uh, this great pause in, yeah. in, a, in a way that's auspicious. And I think that we should read very carefully. Dig it. There's, and people 
perhaps will be able to to see that and feel that energy and that it will perhaps slow the retrenchment into our old ways. I don't know. I mean, certainly space-time has changed. The circumstances of the sequestration changes our relationship very graphically or in a, a Shakespearean sense to space. Now mm. your space is limited. You know? Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also the nature of time. Like you were saying, Sparrow, that you are sleeping in a more irregular or in a more bifurcated mm-hmm. way. You're not sleeping necessarily through the night, but you're kind of more cat-like in your sleeping. Um, and maybe you've experienced that also, Andrew. I don't know. I myself have, assuredly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm sleeping like someone in a study, in a scientific study where there's like, you're in a windowless room and and you, you're completely out of touch with the natural uh, rhythms of nature and you just kind of sleep however, it, how you would sleep if there was no uh, jobs, no alarm clock. Yeah, it reminds me of Buckminster Fuller who spent some time underground to investigate huh. what it would be like um, you know, in a controlled circumstance, I think he spent a month or so uh, sequestered in a lightless place on his by himself alone. Da, 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 da. And he found that he slept for, I think it was these sort of 45 minute periods. And then he would reemerge, do this, do that, go back to sleep for 45 minutes. And then, da, da, you know, like a, a truly fractured or fragmentary sleep pattern. These sorts of experiments have also yielded that most people don't have a full um, full day rhythm, a circadian rhythm of 24 hours. That for most people, it's um, 25 or maybe even more, 25, 26 hours. Your natural cycle does not correspond to, um, I guess, what what would it be, um, solar time. Yeah. Yeah, my kids are staying up till staying up all hours of the night <laughs> oh yeah yeah they're going to bed at three in the morning you know <laughs> yeah they're they don't have classes they don't have virtual classes they don't have to they wake up for the geometry lesson they don't have zoom classes they have assignments the teachers are reaching out to them through message boards uh, and also i think that there are opportunities to f to f uh, with your teacher periodically, but they aren't having collective classes through one of these platforms now. I mean, the strange thing with me is that I'm my life is really about the same as always. I mean, I don't really work. And uh, somebody said on Twitter something like, I was walking outside and my neighbor said, boy, this is really changing everything. And uh, And then the person writing the tweet said, well, actually, I'm a writer, so... I, it hasn't really changed anything for me. And then the guy gives her this look and she says, now I've disappointed someone else's parents, not just my own, something like that. Someone else's parent, not just my own. (laughs) Even though I normally live the same, I, you know, I don't really have any, uh, well, I guess I see people for lunch. I guess that might be the thing that's kind of different. But now I see people on Zoom all the time. I have all these appointments all day. My wife was complaining the other day. She's more busy. 
And also my wife has talent with computers. So people that are good at computers are really in demand because they're the ones that can figure out all this Zoom and, you know, all these other platform nonsense. Because she's, my wife is a Christian scientist. So the at first they were just going to keep meeting in the church. You know, they were just going to forget about the uh, isolation. But then their children started nagging them. So they had to go onto the computer, and they're all like 78 years old. They're not so great with computers, and my wife is rushing around trying to fix everyone's problems. And so she's busier than ever. (laughs) Does she go to their homes? Sometimes, yeah. Well, they have. She kind of has to. You know, aware of two things. You know, one is this disease that we're that we're in. We're in a state of disease, but also the actual fact of COVID-19. To, to contract this is an incredible period of suffering. Even if you don't get intubated or put into a, in, on a ventilator, it's a horrible, deep contagion that really you want to avoid this with uh, every atom of your strength. Maintain the protocol without doubt. That's Although my I... friend, a friend of mine emailed me the other day. I guess I'm not going to give her real name. I'll call her Arlissa. And she said, I think I had the uh, virus a few weeks ago because she said it wasn't so bad, but I did lose my sense of smell for about a week. And she had kind of a bad cold and lost her sense of smell. And uh, now she's better. So, you know, not everyone suffers terribly from it. Probably the majority. Yeah. There's a bell-shaped curve of people that get it, presumably. And, you know, most of them survive. Yeah. But circling back, I'm, I'm also very much aware that we three, to various degrees, are really in a situation in which we can ride through this period of self-isolation because we already have relative, I believe, I don't mean to speak for you, developed inner lives and are capable of self-entertaining, you know, even if we are in the end age of the end of boredom. But we have kind of things that we can do because, you know, we're writers, we make things. And I, and I have a feeling that for us, it's a, it's a fairly easy ride to Samara, uh, excuse me. But for many, it's, it's not easy to have this sudden confrontation with their inner life, I suspect, and that it results in anxiety you know, particularly if there's financial issues, not to say, Sparrow, oh, yeah. that, you know, you live it, you know, live fairly modestly. Loneliness, you know, particularly for these young people that are like maybe practicing the sequestration, but aren't with an amatory companion through whom, you know, they might exercise that aspect of their dimension, etc. You know, and I guess I'd be interested in asking you, Andrew, as a psychologist, if you're aware of any psychological studies or analogs for what happens to people in conditions of this kind of isolation, I suspect that there may be some studies that deal with game theory. I have a feeling this is a kind of, you know, we're all being tested and that mm-hmm. there's some kind of game theory studies that might be applicable. Yeah, I don't know. I'm curious as well. Um, I do know that if people are isolated for 
extended periods of time, if it isn't chosen, if it is, if it's non-volitional, that can result in any number of um, mental struggles, depression, anxiety, even um, mild forms of psychosis, hallucination, delusional thinking. It, it, it reminds me of Aristotle, right? Uh, and the politics, I think it's book two of the politics where he discusses what happens to human beings in isolation. Huh. Things who don't have reciprocal political relationships um, can become um, non-human animals. Huh. Some, you know, there can be some profound psychological, emotional change that occurs. There was that famous enfant ter- terrible, pardon my French sparrow, uh, the ni- 1805 study and i think Truffaut made a movie about this oh yeah the wild the, child the wild man oh, yeah. wild child of avignon yeah. wasn't it yeah. yeah that he came out of living with the wolves literally pretty twisted up well know. like an animal really as i recall yeah. the movie he just learned one word milk right lay the yeah. French word for milk <laughs> <laughs> right that was his first I, word you mean his only word Somehow he was able, he had the, his palate was formed in such a way where he was able to pronounce that one word. And he did <laughs> some very high pitched squeak voice. Lay. And that was all. <laughs> his human handler thought that was going to be the sign that he would be able to pick up much more language. Huh. And but, I think Truffaut played the, the curate or the, the uh, doctor who was overseeing him. Yeah, I think oh, so. Wow. I don't think I was aware of it. Well, if you only have one word, it's not a bad word, milk. Well, it also echoes the fact that he was unable to suckle. I think he was separated from his mother and that he never knew the milk of human kindness. Mm. But he was, I mean, it's kind of a different situation than our situation. I mean, he was someone who was never socialized at all. You're talking right. about people who are kind of desocialized. I mean, it's it's very strange because it's happening during this time of massive computerization where we're all linked together while being separated. Or not all of us, but that's what I was wondering if it's a somewhat generational uh, phenomenon where young people who in general are completely tied into the computerized internet type life for them, they already lived their lives not so different than this, kind of staring at their phones and relating to people through these symbolical messages, of whatever they're called, text messages and Instagram posts. And for them, it's kind of, you know, life as usual. Whereas maybe for an 82-year-old person who really doesn't even have a computer, it must be pretty limiting. Yeah, for sure. Does your dad have an iPhone? He has an iPhone? He's a big iPhone user, yeah. I mean, he's very involved in Facebook because Facebook is kind of for people checking in on their families. As far as I can tell, that's what Facebook is about. He uh, gets online and does all that stuff. Well, he does it with his phone. Yeah. He used to have... He spent years, maybe 10 years, uh, with a real physical computer, not a laptop, whatever those things are called, a personal computer. And um, 
he would play chess for hours a day with people from Bulgaria online through Yahoo. And they would send each other little messages during the game, uh, you know, like interview each other about their lives a little bit. Cool. My wow. father is a big anti-American, you know, he kind of hates uh, people from this country. And uh, he would talk a lot about how people in every other country, he would tell them, I'm a 96-year-old guy playing chess. And they would say, it's such an honor to play with you. I'm so deeply impressed that you are so capable at your age. You know, this is uh, really uh, a delight. And then the Americans would say to him, uh, I'm going to whip your ass. <laughs> they would, like trash talk him. You know, they think, oh, and then like if they were losing in the middle of a game, they just walk off so that they wouldn't have to get an official loss and lower their rate ranking. You know, the, this is what the Americans would do. Everybody else in the world, they know how to lose. Americans, no, we can't lose. Okay. So, yeah, he was a big sociologist of Yahoo Chess, my dad. But then he stopped about five years ago. Stopped. And he doesn't really use his real computer anymore. He just uses his cell phone and mostly is on um, Facebook. And I think he sometimes gets his email. The poem that I have is is Robert Duncan. Oh, um, yeah. Is the poem entitled Childhood's Retreat? And I guess I was interested because of this aspect, you know, I, I personally am lucky that this period of time for me is a kind of a, a bit of a retreat. I mean, my life is pretty recessed or retreated already, you know, living out here in the in the sticks and, you know, being away from New York and my accommodation of that fact you know, which has sort of come home to me through this period is that this is where I live now. This is, you know, my poetic psychosm. But yeah, the, the poem that I wanted to read is, and I guess my feeling is the hope that this period of time might prove a kind of return to a childhood kind of consciousness or delight, or, mm. you know, as we discuss. Carl Gustav Jung's aphorism, you know, that this that the sign of a successful old age is that you learn to play with the same earnestness that you had as a child. Hmm. I think that's come up before in our talks. And yeah, I hope people can come back to their childlike nature, you know, and and, and come back actually in a more forthright way to nature. Mm. So you're going to read it? I'm uh, up for that. Yeah, um, I want to hear it. This is in these three-line stanzas, and then with these two, the last two lines are set off. Well, actually, it's three-line stanzas, then a four-line, then so it's a little bit arrhythmic in that way. And then he uses some of these spaces between words to inform of the reading a, a bit more directly, as, but he also has commas. It's an interesting um, insisting on a kind of insertion of the open. Hmm. Childhood's retreat. It's in the perilous boughs of the tree. Out of blue sky, the wind sings loudest surrounding me. And solitude, a wild solitude's revealed fearfully 
high, I'd climb into the shaking uncertainties, part out of longing, part daring myself, part to see that widening of the world, part to find my own, my secret, hiding sense and place where from afar all voices and scenes come back, the barking of a dog, autumnal burnings, far calls, close calls, the boy I was, calls out to me, hear the man where I am, look, I've been where you most fear to be. Magnificent. What a beautiful poem. Yeah, really. And the, and the ending just kind of comes by surprise you know you're not sure where he's going with this and he just you know brings it all perfectly to a head <laughs> yeah i think it's a super duper apropos i guess yeah. this aspiration for this time because the wind's blowing hard even as we speak and the tr trees are swaying in these almost like 10 to 15 degree arcs back and forth. The trees are davening. <laughs> yeah, in preparation for the Sabbath, which starts in about an hour at 7.13. Well, on that note, so I'm going to read um, just three verses from um, the book of Daniel. Wow. The book of Daniel in the, uh, the Jewish Bible. This comes from the 12th chapter, verses 2 in verses three, verses two to three. Uh, and this is imagining a, a post-resurrected Israel, a new world um, that will replace the, uh, the crumbling edifice of an older world. Many of those that sleep in the dust of earth will awake, some to eternal life, others to reproaches, to everlasting abhorrence. And the wise will be radiant like the bright expanse of sky. And those who lead the many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. Mm. Mm. And I, I pray for some of these figures of radiance to be teachers and guides, to be Virgils to all, all of us in the days that await. Mm. Mm. Yeah, ditto. I wonder whom we should dedicate this podcast to <laughs> on that note. Well... Fauci, Dr. Fauci. Who were you going to say? I, I was going to say John Prine, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he was, a, he was an interesting guy. I don't know, he was a true, you know, some great songs, I thought, you know, just in terms of kind of popular music, I guess. But What what songs, Sam? I, I don't know any of his, his work. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family. After serving in the conflict overseas, well, the time that he served had shattered all his nerves and left <laughs> a bit of shrapnel in his knees. But the morphine eased the pain and the grass grew round his brain and gave him all the confidence he lacked with the purple heart and a monkey on his back. I, mean, you I didn't know. know you could sing. Nicely done. Really good uh, tribute to John Prime. 
It's funny, I've just lately been listening to John Prine, you know, just because the algorithm suggested it. And uh, I mean, I must say I was not terribly moved by it, but, you know, I don't know that I was listening to his greatest songs, but I did kind of, it was interesting. I mean, I realized, you know, from the YouTube comments that people really loved him. You know, he was a real American original and not a big star. He had a decent uh, heart and wrote about real people and good politics, I think. And he was what, in his early 70s, maybe at 72 or 73? Early 70s. And Hal Wilner was somebody I kind of was distantly involved with, knew about. He was a great music producer and he would organize these concerts. Hal Wilner. He died the same day as John Prine. He was the music director of Saturday Night Live for like the last 40 years or something like that. He died of COVID. Yeah, he died of it. He was two years younger than me. He was 64. There was a beautiful video clip that Rolling Stone put on the internet of Leonard Cohen and Sonny Rollins. And what is that song by Leonard Cohen? Something like, something like, who will die of fire? Who will die of... Yeah. <laughs> who, who by fire? By fire. Is that what it's called? Who by fire. Yeah. Yeah. And then Sonny Rollins, incredible on saxophone with this with this uh, band playing behind, you know, Leonard Cohen, maybe 1979 on this show, Sunday Night Live, that Hal Wilner was the musical force behind this was his idea to get these two guys together i mean that was what he's kind of famous for yeah yeah super interesting you know weirdly asymmetrical and at the same time like some higher level of complementariness that's terrific yeah and Um, i last uh the last show of how wilner's i saw was maybe five years ago in prospect park for free it was a tribute to the freedom riders it was the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. And uh, he had all these different performers, but the only one I remember is Lou Reed singing A Change Is Gonna Come, the Sam Cooke song. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.